0: Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by NAF 5 Star Superflex. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, it's been another busy week of horse sport with the Royal Windsor Horse Show and eventing at Chatsworth. We're just loving having these iconic events back in their normal places in the calendar. Our interview this week is with our newly crowned badminton winner, Laura Collett, she talks us through her incredible
1: week. Even if you've had an average round, crossing the finish line at badminton is a seriously special feeling. So to cross it knowing you're in the lead is just, I can't even explain it. <laughs> we'll look back at Royal Windsor and talk about
0: recommendations for the 2024 Olympics, plus research into spinal injuries. Finally, we'll hear from two vets, Rick Farr from Far & Percy Equine and the Royal Veterinary College's Andy Fisk Jackson, They give us a light-hearted look at what life as a vet is really like.
2: That phone is generally though the bane of your life sometimes. Yeah. You're in your deepest sleep. Unfortunately, the person on the other end of the phone is in the middle of a field and gives you their entire life history and the history of the horse, sometimes without saying their name, within about 15 seconds. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, pull on your overreach boots and let's get going. We're starting with our Laura Collett interview, and we apologize for the slightly subpar sound quality at the start of this interview, but please do stick with it because it really improves after a couple of minutes. I'm delighted now to be joined by a very special guest. She is hot off the back of winning badminton horse trials. So there are no prizes for guessing her name. It's Laura Collett. Hi, Laura.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Yes, good, thank you. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. We are speaking just over a week after badminton, and I know that you were out competing again at Aston Awards the week after the event. Have you even had any time to celebrate?
1: Not really. Uh, we had a, a few drinks on Monday night, um, but then yeah, it's all been a bit a bit manic trying to catch up on a bit of sleep. Definitely planning on having a proper party um, once everything's settled down a bit.
0: Oh, I'm glad to hear that because I do like to see people enjoying the moment when when these wonderful results come round. So I want to roll back and, uh, and, and relive the badminton week with you, but I wanted to start by asking about the journey from winning Olympic gold in Tokyo last summer through to badminton. Coming out of the Olympics last year, Just tell us a bit about how you reflected on that competition and what you did with London 52, Dan to his friends, sort of through the winter after Tokyo.
1: Well, he had a a nice long summer holiday. He he had a proper long break, which was really good for him and very well deserved. Um, And I guess I spent most of the time from coming back from Tokyo to Getting back on him, um, thinking about all the things that that went wrong and all the things that could have should have happened. So, yeah, I guess it was nice to have a break in time to reflect.
0: Yeah, and I think hopefully, as we sort of go through the week, we'll talk about about some of those things that that you wanted to put right and to change. But fast forwarding to badminton week, when did you and Dan actually travel to badminton?
1: And so we went there on the Tuesday. Um, had dressage lessons Tuesday morning at home. And then left around lunchtime, so it was pretty civilized arrival. And he just um, went in the stable and had a had a nice chill afternoon at, at badminton in his new stable.
0: And I know that at badminton there are sort of different areas of those lovely permanent stables that the horses get to be in for the week. Do you have a favourite area of those yards? Do you request a particular stable, or do you sort of take what comes?
1: I did this year request to be in the stable that I had with Ray at my first badminton. Um, which was in the main main courtyard. I've sort of been several places, I've been in Court and I've been under the clock tower. And um, for me, a I've, you know that was my luckiest badminton was um, being in that stable with Rayeth. and also it was the place that I you know felt was the most special and and quiet, and that I thought would suit down the most. So um, yeah, luckily they were very kind and gave me the exact same stable that I I was in at my very first badminton.
0: Oh, that is a lovely feeling. So that was, was that 2011, your debut with Ray Yeah. Yeah, that must have been such a nice feeling to, to be back in that stable. And just tell us a little about sort of your setup up for the badminton week. Did you have your lorry there? Were you staying in your lorry? What was sort of your base for the week?
1: Yeah, we stayed in the lorries and um, the lorries are parked um, a little way away from the, the stables, um, but it's nice and quiet um, by the village hall and uh, yeah, it's nice to have everyone together.
0: Yeah, and just just tell us a little about about your gang and your supporters for the week. Who did you have around you? Obviously, I know that Tilly Hughes was your was your groom for the week, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, so um, it was just me and Tilly um, staying in the lorry, um, and then my mum came in every day with Karen Bartlett, um, one of the owners, um, and Karen runs the horse trial support groups at tent. So it was quite good to keep mum occupied and out of the way um, without getting too stressed. So she um, had she had a, she had a good job to do and um, then um, it was amazing because I had a lot of my friends come in for the week and they actually were only meant to come sort of on dressage day and then as the week progressed and things were going quite well they kept deciding that they might need to come back and they all all came on the Sunday we have um we have a whatsapp group called dream team um and it was amazing to have them all all there to kind of share share the dream with me really <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And your
0: dressage was on Friday. And I know that you spoke a little during the event about the fact that you wanted to prepare quite differently to that test to what you did in Tokyo. So between arriving on Tuesday afternoon and that test on Friday, what did you do with Dan in those couple of days?
1: So on the Wednesday, I went for a nice hack out out in the park. Um, he was very full of himself. So it was really... It was kind of quite testing for me not to get stuck in um, because he was feeling very fresh and and very on his toes. But I just, I'd promised myself I'd stick to a new system. So um, luckily I did. I I took him for a nice long hack in the morning, took him for another hack um, and did a little bit of stretching work in the afternoon um, after trot up and did the um, arena familiarization. And then Thursday, we decided to to do a bit of pole work with him and, and a little bit of, again, a little bit of stretching and a, a, and a tiny bit of dressage, but not go in an arena, just in the big open space. Um, he felt amazing. So we decided that on Friday morning, um, I'd again just do, I think I did about 10, 15 minutes of pole work with Dickie just to give him a little bit of exercise, but no pressure and keep him sweet and not make him think he was, doing dressage really um and he came out and a, a, as soon as I got on him for his test I just knew he was going to do a good test he felt amazing um he was totally with me and and he just felt ready to to show everybody what he's made of
0: yeah and Laura of course referencing Dickie Wager there the British eventing performance manager who who is helping her was Dicky sort of your your eyes on the ground in the warm up on on dressage day Laura who is helping you
1: um, so Ian, Ian Woodhead, um, I trained with Ian for for dressage um, and do jumping with with Dicky. So um, it was kind of a, a joint effort. Dickie was there with Ian and and everybody sort of, you know, made sure. You know, I, I was very open with with them. You know, after Tokyo, about how I felt that we'd so, you know made a mistake and and overdone. It. it was very difficult in Tokyo because there was nowhere to go for a hack or everything you did was in an arena and you just got a bit drawn into to doing too much. So, you know, I'd, I'd made it very clear and I'd said to Dickie the week before badminton, I, I said, can you just make sure I don't go off piste and <laughs> change what I'm doing? You know, this is the plan. So he was kind of there to, to make sure he didn't get tempted into doing any dressage and, and overdoing it. So um, it was definitely a team a team effort.
0: Yeah, I could really see that having been in Tokyo, that that sort of complex where the horses was living, there wasn't really any space to work horses away away from the arena. So that quite a different setup to badminton. One of the things that I think about riding about badminton must be that actually, because the arenas are quite a long way from the stables, you must have to really plan your timings on the day of your test in terms of how long it's going to take you to walk up and how long you then want to work your horse and that sort of thing. So it's going to be a good 10 minutes just walking up from the stables to, to get up to the warm up.
1: Yeah and um, but obviously you know to, to to get anywhere you have to do that walk and um so by by the time you actually have to plan your test and and your cross country and things like that you know exactly how long it's going to take and I'd I'd plan to just walk to the you know walk across the lawn um and then actually trot um more just to keep his you know his mind on me rather than you know I was thinking if you're just walking up that that horse walk there's so much um for them to look at and you've got the crowds there and the big screen and everything and i think if you just walk up it you know they can you can lose their mind a little bit so i decided to to just walk the first bit and then trot all the way just keeping him listening and keeping him focused so and and also i didn't want to sort of have to be on him for too too long either so um that was all all planned into the preparation
0: Mm. And of course that minute preparation really came off when you put in a really super test, scored 21, went into the lead. Now you and I are quite familiar with what happens immediately after a rider's test at badminton because sort of the, the media part of it is sort of the next thing that happens once you've got off and had a bit of a debrief and, and given your horse a good pat. But for those who are less familiar with that, just, just run us through what happens. You, ride, you do your test, you ride out of the arena, you ride out of the main ring through the arch. What, what happens next? What do you have to do?
1: So you jump off, and you're basically taken straight to the to the media, um, and sort of always feel like you abandoned the horse. Um, but luckily, he's got a great team looking after him, the owners, and and Tilly um, doing the, the check with the stewards to make sure you know he's not got anything in his ears, and he's not got anything illegal in his mouth, and things like that. Um, that all happens, and, and then they lead him back whilst um, I'm stood talking to all the, all the media about how it went
0: yeah so the riders are brought into a sort of mixed zone listeners where they speak first of all to radio badminton and then and then to to other press and 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 give us all the lowdown hopefully on what's happened and then presumably you had to do a sort of chat zone press conference in the evening that day as well because you were in the lead as well laura
1: yeah so um it was slightly different to other times at badminton where normally the top three go and just do a press conference um they've done it slightly more Public, so it was a chat zone, so so the public could come and hear what was what was being said. But yeah, it's basically just a, a sort of mini interview um, with the top three about how how the days gone and thoughts on the um, days ahead. <laughs> yeah, so
0: turning to the days ahead, how how was the build up to cross country for you? Presumably, in between the sort of carefully planned work you were doing with Dan, you were also fitting in course walks from sort of Wednesday onwards, and really getting to grips with your plan for Saturday.
1: Yeah, um, I I walked the course straight after the briefing on the Wednesday, and then I actually had to do a few course walks with sponsors and things on the Thursday, and um, it was in a way it was good because it was a distraction, and and it also stopped me from doing too much riding. So um, Thursday was quite busy with doing some media stuff and um, and course walks and things like that, and then Friday I said, you know get the dressage out of the way, and then the rest of the afternoon was was focusing fully on. Um, walking the course, I, I think I walked it twice, um, Friday afternoon, once with Tilly, because she hadn't walked it and wanted to see. Um, and I actually found it really helpful. It was just me and Tilly went walking, and I kind of, I was explaining to her my plan. So it was good to actually verbalize my plan. Um, and it made me made me actually really concentrate and think, you know, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Um, I'd walked it with Yogi Breisner before I walked it with Tilly um and and had a you know had a really clear plan as to what I wanted to do and then it was very much just making sure I stuck to that plan
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then tell us about the build-up on Saturday morning um was it sort of a a, a bit of a nervous wait for your time
1: um yes and no um it was a very strange a strange morning really um I, I I rode him First thing I thought I'd got you know get on him early and get get out and give him a nice hack and and I actually gave him a jump because in in Tokyo we'd had a plan because of the heat and everything that we would jump them very very early doors before it got too hot and then do minimal warm up before going cross country um, and he can get a little bit excited so and it it worked really well and he felt amazing in Tokyo so we we thought we'd try and do that again um and it, and it did work very well so I gave him a jump early in the morning um just about five or six of the cross-country fences and then put him away and he went out for some grass and just trying to keep him as as chilled as possible it was i was surprised as to how many people were streaming in in the car parks and um at seven o'clock in the morning um everyone seemed to want to get there early so yeah it was um you know it was good to get him out but even even at that time, it was still quite a buzz around the place. Um, and then I went and walked a few a few more lines and a few of the fences, and then sat and watched the first few go, which was not really what I <laughs> what I was wanting to to see. It was um, very difficult to sit and watch, you know, Tom McEwen and Toledo come to grief, and then followed by Nicola Wilson and J L Dublin come to grief and and then there was a the long hold and I actually walked away and went back to the lorry because I just thought I didn't this, this isn't going to plan and actually in a in a funny way it made me almost a bit more relaxed because I thought well you know this is this is the kind of day that is just going to be carnage and um you know at least if if something goes wrong for me I'm not going to be on my own there's everybody's having a problem so uh kind of in a, in a weird way it, I felt like it it took a bit of pressure off and Tilly was yeah we, we talked about it afterwards and she said I've never seen you quite so calm um and it was yeah it was a very strange I, I was surprised myself as to how relaxed I was about about cross-country day but um the Sunday it soon changed <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting that you were able to kind of turn it round and think that the fact other people were having problems almost made it feel easier rather than rather than more nerve wracking. And just talk us through that cross country round that you had.
1: Yeah, so he he set out. He was you know he felt really good in the warm up, and he, he I was a bit worried how he'd be in the main arena um, with all the cheering and and their horse. Some horses can get very lit up, but he was actually very very relaxed and and calm and um he set off he felt great um i completely messed up at a quarry um and i i I didn't balance him enough and i i surprised him how how fast and how tight i turned into it um that i think it was the wake-up call that we both needed he it meant he was a lot sharper and quick thinking and it meant that i didn't ride quite so badly (laughs) around the rest of the course and he felt phenomenal through huntsman's and the lake and once he'd done that, I thought, well, like, well, you know, he he's feeling great, and then he spooked quite badly at the egg boxes, which I don't really know why. They were, you know, meant to be nice, straightforward fences, but um, again, it was a good kick up the backside because it meant that I really didn't, you know, rest on the laurels of him thinking of feeling good and went into the vicarage line very determined, and he was fantastic. He he just kept answering all the questions. He was a bit sticky at the vicarage v but i couldn't really see see anything uh, coming around the corner you just you walk the course so many times and you plan on what you're going to aim at and the line you're going to ride and suddenly you come around the corner and all you can see is a sea of people and it, it's quite off-putting really because you don't know what you're aiming at and um i i just slightly didn't didn't ride forward quick enough really and um, so gave him a chance to kind of see what what it was that we were actually asking him to do and um, had a bit of a hairy jump over the Vicarage V but he picked up and he jumped through the solar panels um brilliantly and then and then I as I came around the corner and I was you know opened him up he felt brilliant he was galloping away and then I saw the red flag waving I thought oh no <laughs> um and I was being held and you know at that point you just you know you're kind of on a roll and you just wanted to get home but at the same time I just convinced myself that it had to be a good thing and um, I just hoped that he would cope with being held because he's never been held before and it was quite far round on the course, you know, coming up to nine minutes and um, you just never know how they're going to react. But um, luckily, my my team, Tilly and, and Hannah, my friend, had a buggy so managed to rally through all the crowds and, and come to me with buckets of water and, and washed him down and, and got, everything, got everything in place, ready to... To restart again. So it was, yeah, I was very relieved to see some friendly faces because you feel very lonely out there on the course and, and you know, crowds of people all, you know, being lovely and saying nice things. But really, all you want to do is focus on what you've got left to do on the course. But once he restarted, he felt like a fresh horse and he galloped all the way to the line and just, yeah, crossing the finish line is just, you know, it's a feeling that. Even if you've had an average round, crossing the finish line at Badminton is a seriously special feeling. So to cross it knowing you're in the lead is just, I can't even explain it.
0: <laughs> and I know that as you came to the line, it looked like you were sort of winding down. You were quite confident of being inside the time. So you must have been pretty on it with in terms of stopping your watch for the hold to be that confident that, that you were quite comfortable on the time.
1: Um, yeah, well, I I knew I was, um, I was on every minute mark. I was slightly up um, at the top water. Um, and coming out of the vicarage line i knew i was there or thereabouts on the clock so i knew if, if he'd kept up a good gallop i was going to be um okay on the time and and it felt like he'd he'd picked up and he'd actually would have would have made up time um after the after the hold so um yeah i i said to dick i had a bit of a panic because they um they said that they'd stopped the clock a lot earlier than what I stopped my watch. And I was like, Oh god, when do I start it? And Dickie just looked at me and said, just go as fast as you can. Um, don't worry about the clock. So um, you know, once I restarted, I did restart my watch roughly where I thought that I'd stopped it. And and I knew, yeah, I might not have been bang on, you know, bang on the times, um, but I knew I was within two or three seconds and I was, you know, 10, 15 seconds up on the clock coming up to the into the main arena so i knew i had time to make sure i set up for the last fence which is always nice feeling
0: yeah definitely and after that sort of saturday obviously you then had your media commitments again the same, same rigmarole again mix zone and, and chat zone in the evening and presumably lots of of good care for dan to make sure he was he was feeling well for the rest of saturday too
1: yeah um yeah again it's a very strange feeling because all you want to do is go and make sure that your horse is okay and you're sort of you know you're you're taken off immediately after you get off um you're taken off to do media and then um I had to go and do some commentary and actually I didn't manage to see him I saw him very briefly before I went to do the the commentary to check that he was he was okay until he was happy with him and you know that he has the best care and you knew he was in in the very best care so by the time I actually got back having done the, the commentary and the media centre um, and the press conference then and um, you know, it was quite late it was probably about 6 30 o'clock in the evening and he was out grazing very happy and and then we trotted him up with the vets and made a plan. And um, yeah, it was just, it was nice, even though, you know, I'd been told he was okay. It was nice to actually see with my own eyes that, that he was okay. And he just, yeah, he just stood there looking a million dollars. He, you know, he's the kind of horse he knows when he's done something good. And he was just so pleased with himself. And it was just a really special feeling to see him look so happy. Oh, that's lovely. And you said that the nerves did really start to kick
0: in on, on Sunday morning. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I think I was in total shock really on Saturday, and um, I, I didn't really take it in. I, I was sat in the lorry with with my friends until Tilly, um, yeah, about eleven eleven thirty at night, just like in total disbelief as to what had happened. And then, um, I think I got a grand total of about forty five minutes sleep on Saturday night, and and then I was I, I was like when I got up, like I cried solidly for two hours because it suddenly hit me what what was happening, and um, and the, and the thought of having to wait all day before I, before I could ju- jump to find out how it was all going to end but um yeah then you know we, we got the trot up done and then it was about kind of making a plan I, I jumped him in the morning with Dickie um just about five or six fences and and he felt fantastic he felt really fresh and then it was about distracting me basically um so we went shopping and then I freaked out that there were too many people and then actually I went and had a little sleep in the lorry and just tried to switch off from it all before I had to get on to go to go and do the do the show jumping but I I can honestly say I've, I've never felt as sick as I did on on Sunday for the entire day I had to force myself to eat something because I knew it wasn't going to be jumping till like four o'clock in the afternoon and My friend Susie sat with me and and made me eat and she said it looked like I was doing a bush tucker trial because I just looked like I wanted to be sick. But yeah, it was just a very long day, but luckily it was all worth it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it really, as you say, it was like, it was sort of four o'clock before you were jumping. So it's a long old wait. And you said you gave him a bit of a jump in the morning and then who helped you sort of, who was in the warm up with you just before your show jumping and how much did you do with him at that stage?
1: Um, not too much because, you know, he's he's a great jumper and it was about making sure he felt fresh and, and well. And um, I, I jumped a few fences with Dickie and I had Yogi there as well to talk me through everything about the course and made a plan. Um, and it was just... In, in the morning it all felt great and I felt like I was riding okay and he was jumping really well and then when I started warming up in the afternoon I just genuinely didn't feel like I could see a stride at all uh, but he was jumping amazing and and I just had to take a deep breath and, and go in and just trust that he he was a good enough jumper to get me out of trouble which is exactly what he did <laughs>
0: Well, it didn't look to us like you were like, you couldn't see a stride. I think, it, I think I said this on one of our daily podcasts. And I think this is where the sort of the practice and the preparation of a real professional kicks in that, although you felt like, you know, you weren't riding at your best, that sort of muscle memory of what you do every day when you're practicing in so many competitions must've, have, must've have really come into it. Do you remember the round or is it just a blur now?
1: Um, I remember feeling like I I couldn't see a distance and that I kept adding strides where I shouldn't have done and and I I remember jumping the the double at the end and then the crowd going crazy and I was like oh no don't miss at the last <laughs> fence um, but yeah it was just it was a bit of a blur and I I came out and because I was so. It felt awful, um, and, and it was the first—you know—one of the first things I did when I got got in the lorry um, on the way home was to watch it. And I just looked at Tilly and I said, "Thank God that didn't look as bad as it felt." He, you know, he's just a, an exceptional horse, and and he he made me look all right. <laughs> <It is good. laughs>
0: I think you were all right as well, Laura. But um, and then after after you won, it's kind of the same the same rigmarole with Preston, but all sort of massively multiplied because there were TV interviews and. So many things just happening immediately afterwards, aren't there?
1: Yeah, um, you know, they they want an instant reaction. and, And so you're, you know, you get off and you're surrounded by people giving you a hug and, and just you know, I just totally lost it. I couldn't believe it. Um, and then you know, they they drag you to to stand in front of a camera and tell you you're on BBC and it's live, and they want a reaction. And I gen- I genuinely could not So thank God for for Tina, um, Tina Cook, because she literally held me up. Otherwise, I think I probably would have been on the floor. <laughs> um, I just was shaking and couldn't couldn't really get any words out. So the interview um, was it was interesting, but um, yeah, it was. You know, it it's just a an unbelievable feeling, and you know at the time you just can't really can't believe that it, it's actually happening.
0: I mean, how long did it take you for actually to get away from Babington? Cause I know there's sort of those immediate interviews, there's the prize giving there. There are some more special prizes who, which are given sort of in the press office. And we saw riders starting to disperse from that when we were sitting on the grass outside recording our, our daily podcast, probably an hour after you've jumped, maybe even an hour and a half. It must've been a, a fair, a fair wading through things before you could even get on the road home.
1: Yeah. And, and to be honest, we, we stayed, um, we stayed and, and had drinks because they had so many friends there. Um, we went to the lakeside and and had a had a nice drink and and a chilled chilled departure. Um, so we actually didn't get home till about half eleven, and considering we only live about an hour away, um, tells you uh, we didn't we didn't rush to get out of the place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really nice to make the most of these things, as I said earlier, when they happen, because there's so much that that goes into them. You know, it's a uh, you know we, we we talked a little about about the winter's work and thought that that went into it, but you know this isn't. This isn't about a winter it's about 20 years of work to get to this point in your in your career and I feel like it's something that probably a win like this and and uh, similarly an Olympic gold will settle in your mind over time and change what it means to you but sort of with 10 days distance how do you feel about it and and where it sort of fits into your life and career
3: oh
1: you know this is the the very top I don't think you're ever going to top the feeling of of winning badminton it's it's always it's always a question growing up everyone says oh you know what would you rather an olympic gold or or to win badminton and, and it's for me it's always been to win badminton um so to to think that I, i've been lucky enough to, to to win an olympic gold medal and and a badminton is just beyond my wildest dreams um you know you, you dream of it but you never ever think that it will actually actually happen and and to to think that it has is is just yeah it's going to take a very long time for it to properly sink in but it's um i, I don't think i slept for about well, the first week because i was scared that i'd wake up and it would all just be a dream um and and on monday morning about five thirty, piggy march sent me a text and she said don't worry my sweet it did happen you really did win badminton and i just thought you obviously had the same feeling on the monday morning you woke up in a panic thinking did this really happen but yeah it's just um the messages and and the support that i've had from people that i just i look up to and worship um just is is mind-blowing really um to think that they've taken the time to to send a message, and um, I don't think they probably realise what it means to someone like me to to get that to get that message of support from them. But it's yeah, it makes the whole thing just so so special.
0: Yeah, I knew you must have been up early. I think it was on Tuesday morning. Cause I think it was Monday afternoon that I messaged you and asked if you'd have time to do the podcast, and you replied pretty early on uh, on on Tuesday. So uh, <laughs> I was like, well, either she's up and up and working and getting the next badminton winner produced, or, or, or there's just not much sleeping going on. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> and final question, Laura what um, what are your next plans for Dan? Presumably,
1: he has a bit of a break now. Yeah, um, you yeah, know, he's he's chilling in the field, having a nice time. Um, yeah, he'll have a. Have a bit of a holiday and then um get, you know, obviously the the next dream is is a world of questioning games, but um again, we've got to get selected for that and um, so yeah, just the, the the most important thing is that he you know, he has a break and, and a well well deserved holiday and then start again and start planning for the next thing. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, those
0: World Championships in September in Pretoni. So we'll look forward to to following the selection race for that, for sure. And following the competition through. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Laura. I'm sure everyone wants a piece of your time at the moment, but it's been really lovely to relive the week with you. Thank you for having me. So I'm joined now by two of my colleagues to have a chat about last week's Royal Windsor Horse Show. We have on our showing editor Alex Robinson and our show jumping editor Jen Donald. Hi to both of
4: you. Alex, let's start with you. How was it being being back at Windsor? Hi Pippa, It was absolutely fabulous. I traveled down on the on the Wednesday evening in preparation for for an early start on on Thursday. Uh, the sunshine for the majority of the show and um, there were so many beautiful horses and, and ponies around um, from you know your most more seasoned horses who have been there before and there were also some stunning new faces out and about so it was yeah, a real great mixture of horses and yeah everyone was in great spirits. It was a, a really really nice show. Oh, great. And Jen, how about you?
3: Yes, ditto. It felt so good to be back, uh, back at a show at its proper place and its proper time. Um, and we started with sort of eight a.m. We had national classes on day one, right through to the Rolex Grand Prix on the Sunday, and it was just phenomenal jumping and a great um, spirit and atmosphere, as Alex said. And I think having the Queen there this year just felt—I mean, she's there sort of every year—but it just felt extra special this year. And I think, uh, yeah, having Tom Cruise there on a Sunday night as well, I think <laughs> that raises the level even further. So yeah. It great show (laughs) and I'm right in thinking aren't I that Windsor did run last year but it ran in the summer at a different place in the calendar to normal exactly yes it was a bit later because we were just on the back of all the covid restrictions so um, it was slightly different last year and of course it was just before the olympics so from a show jumping perspective it was a a big deal but uh, we always get the top name so it's always a good show to go to
0: yeah, of course. I think that's why I feel like it passed me by last year, because I was in this sort of Tokyo fog for a, for a couple of months. But it's great to have the show back in full, in full steam, so to speak. And as you say, in its proper place in the calendar, we're going to talk about some of the standout performances and classes for the pair of you in your respective disciplines. So uh, we'll, we'll go one and then the other on a couple of these. <laughs> Alex, we'll start with you and um,
4: give us one of your standout performances or standout classes of the show. Well I guess we'll start in, we'll go in chronological order because the very first show in class on Thursday was the, was the Working Show Horses and this was won by Cheshire producer Vicky Smith and her coloured horse Bart who has uh, excelled on the flat he's won hoys three times he's won the Royal International a few times and he's he's been a real contender on, on the flat as I said but he was here jumping and he won won the class in the in the castle arena very first class of the show and he looked absolutely incredible and him and Vicky just have such a partnership I know the ride judge um, and Gilliver was so complimentary of his ride and his round and and he also came back on Saturday and um, for a Crack at the um, at the coloured flat classes, which he won. He's been second here a few times, so he came up to win that class as well. And and he's just an amazing horse, and he, he goes well in, in both disciplines. You know, both over fences and on the flat. And yeah, Vicky was just so overjoyed because she's kind of brought him on through his career. And yeah, and um, it was just lovely to, to watch him and um, you know excel in a in a new class. Mm. Great, good to hear about that one. And Jen, you give us
0: your
3: first standout performance or class. I would have to say the Rolex Grand Prix on Sunday afternoon. I mean, it's it's an epic class in its own right, and uh, it's one of the richest prizes in the world, let alone on British soil. But um, it's always a great competition. Attracts the biggest names, and they they bring out their top horses. But uh, I mean, this year it resulted in a three way jump off, which sometimes is a bit of a letdown and can be a bit of an anti climax because it becomes very tactical and uh, you never quite know what it's gonna um, pan out like but all three riders said this year right we just got to go for it because it's a huge amount of prize money 125,000 euros to the winner and uh, with three of them in it they had nothing to lose so they just all went for it and it was it was very exciting so the winner was Gregory Wathalay of uh, Belgium with his absolutely stunning stallion Nevados S he's a big winner they you know they've won loads all around the world but um, their jump off performance he took off a mile away from the final fence which was a big towering sort of one meter 65 Rolex vertical Um, and the distance he took off to jump that and cleared it easily. Um, it was just, it was proper gasp moment. It was like the whole crowd was just like, Whoa, how on earth did he clear that? So, uh, yeah, to win with a performance like that was pretty special. And he, he missed his flight home, unfortunately, but, um, I think when you've won 125,000 euros, you probably don't mind too much. He's quite happy to do that. Yeah. So it was, it was very good class. You could probably afford a couple of hundred quid for a different flight home, I imagine. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing that uh, that grey stallion in Tokyo, actually, with with Gregory and him being pretty impressive there as well. So back to you, Alex, give us another of your your
4: favourite standouts from the show. Well, native ponies were were out in force uh, as per usual, and there was huge classes um, across the minis, the in hands, and the flat ridden ponies. We obviously had the Queen's Balmoral layer, her Highland pony, win the win the in hand championship on on Friday, but probably my personal favorite favorite native was a little Dartmoor stallion called Salcombe Stairhole Bay. He's a little uh, bay stallion ridden by Katie Marriott Payne and they won the, the um, London Heritage Supreme Qualifier on Saturday. It was a really super championship. Some beautiful ponies present and as I said, the classes were huge and this was actually a career first for Katie. She's won loads of championships over the years but she's never actually won one at Windsor which was was quite remarkable really. I didn't know that, that's amazing. Yeah she was absolutely delighted and uh, this was kind of the last one she had to tick off the box and he came through from the small breeds class and he just looked absolutely incredible against the bigger ponies and he, he really did stand out in that championship. Yeah so he was definitely one of one of my uh, standout performances. And Jen coming back to you give us another
0: another class or performance that you enjoyed.
3: The other one I enjoyed was actually the under twenty five class, which is it's a great place for talent spotting in general. But uh, this year the winner was Sienna Charles, who is Harry Charles's younger sister. She may be familiar to um, the name, may be familiar to lots of people. But um, she's she's only nineteen. She's a great young rider, really super young rider. But she's um, she's had some health issues over the last year. She's she had a head injury. She's undergone some rehab, and you know she's had a really tough time. Only came back jumping in the spring. So. Um, to come out and produce a phenomenal performance like she did with her great Mayor Chinta, she definitely deserved to win that and it was very exciting to see. So uh, watch watch the name, she's one to watch, and actually she and her sister Scarlett are making their Senior Nations Cup debut quite soon. So um, definitely two names to, to watch out for. Gosh, I feel like if they're making their nation's cup, debut, we might soon have an entire team of Charleses (laughs) taking over from the Whittakers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Definitely challenging them. Well, Jen, that's a neat segue because my next question was about younger or up and coming horses and riders who impressed you. Give us some ones to watch from Windsor. So Alex, we'll come to you again first on that and then, and then back to Jen. Who, who's one, one that you saw at Windsor that we think we're going to see a lot more of in the future.
4: Well, it probably had to be 20 year old Alice Homer. I mean, she's um, been on the rise for for quite a while, but she's still such a young rider. She won three championships um, here at Windsor. She started off a campaign in the workers. She won the heavyweight class and was champion on her own Little Joe, who gave a absolutely flying round and yeah, um, took the championship in the castle arena. Uh, The following day, she was back on Liz Prouting's novice lightweight Bloomfield president and he, Won his class and the section championship, and and that novice class at Windsor. Those novice hunters are really, you know, the classes of the show. So many great show horses have started off there, and that was another career first for Alice. She's never she's never won that title before. Uh, so she was out of the ring after the novice win and she was straight back in in with her ladies ride bloomfield eloquence who is also owned by liz prouting and he won a really strong ladies hunter class and so yeah alice um she won three three classes at windsor had had a great show and she obviously comes from from showing royalty her mum is lorraine homer and her grandfather is david tatlow showing royalists in their own right and yeah, I mean, Alistair was was on an absolute flyer. She had a she had a really really great run uh, with some beautiful horses, and I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of her at those championship shows. And she'll definitely be one to look out for at the Royal International later in the year uh, and Horse of the Year show in October.
0: I feel like 20-year-olds called Alice are in vogue after Alice Caspern's performance at badminton <laughs> as well.
4: <laughs>
0: nice, uh, nice little uh, coincidence there as well. Jen, give us your, your one to watch from a younger or up-and-coming horse or rider.
3: Well, yes, I'm actually sticking with the Charles family, but moving on to their horses. Um, Harry Charles has got a new horse called Billabong du Roumois. Terrible French accent, sorry everyone. Um, And uh, yeah, it's a French horse, funnily enough. But he made his debut here on home soil. He's ridden it once in Saint-Tropez. Um, And he's comparing this horse to Stardust, which is his Olympia World Cup winner. So obviously thinks a huge amount of it. Um, He brought it out on Saturday and they jumped clear, but didn't have the best jump off. And then he brought it back out for the speed class on Sunday and just annihilated the opposition. They won by nearly three seconds. Such a good jumper, incredibly fast. He's come from um, a French rider called Julien Epayard, who is phenomenally quick anyway, and has obviously learnt the trade uh, with him. But um, he's absolutely, definitely one to watch. And he says, you know, exciting times ahead with this new partnership. So yeah, keep your eye on on them. I think he's going to be a good one for Harry to ride.
0: Mm, Harry's got so much strength and depth of horsepower at the moment hasn't he?
3: Absolutely and it's come at the right time you know it's a big year we've got the world championships coming up and I think every rider you know the aim is to get a big string at the top so that you can contest all the championships as well as all the Grand Prix and other you know other big shows that you want to keep going with so um, yeah he's, he's got a great team behind him. Mm. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jen. And thank you to Alex for
0: joining us as well. It's been great to hear all about Windsor from both of you. So I'm joined today by two of our news team. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How's your week been, Eleanor?
5: Yeah, really good actually. I mean it started with the lorry failing its MOT so we'll move swiftly on from that and it got better when I went to Hickstead for the dressage and it was just amazing. Fantastic show. I went on Saturday so I had the best of the weather and like some amazing tunes playing and and really good top quality dressage so you can't argue with that. I'm enjoying the fact that you went to see some dressage and your standout was there was there some
0: top quality <laughs> tunes playing.
5: <laughs> Maybe not the standout, but it did add to the whole uh, Keller appeal of it all. <laughs> <laughs> were you reporting or were you just there for fun? No, reporting. So uh, yeah, you can read that report in this week's magazine. Got to speak to the lovely Gareth Hughes, who won the Grand Prix, and Charlotte Dujardin and Annabella Pidgeley that had had great shows as well. It was, yeah, really, really good.
0: Oh, great. Excellent. We also have with us Lucy Elder, our senior news writer. How's it going with you, Lucy?
6: It's been great, thanks, Pippa. I've been out and about quite a lot this week for news stories that will be coming up in sort of future, future issues of the magazine. But I was down in London and then I was up in Lambourne. So it's been, uh, yeah, a lovely week. Beautiful. I mean, I don't think there's anywhere more beautiful, really, than standing on those downs at sort of early morning, listening to the skylarks and watching horses. So, yeah, it's been a, a lovely week. How about you?
0: It's been all good. I had a, quite a non-horsey weekend, actually. We had a big family party on Saturday, one that we've missed out on during COVID at Christmas for the past couple of years. So we decided to have a spring party instead with all my cousins and and so on. So that was great. And actually had a little jump at home with Alfie on Sunday, just getting getting going again after being away from badminton and Kentucky. So hoping to go to a show jumping show with him in a couple of weeks time. And oh, uh, so,
6: yeah. Wonderful.
0: So on the serious side, on the news desk, Eleanor, you have been working on a story about some recommendations made by the French government ahead of the Paris 2024 Olympics. What's the background and and reasons given for this
5: report and these recommendations? So, yeah, so this report was made by a study group from one of the houses of the French government and they they say they made it after some incidents at the Tokyo Olympics and they refer to some specific incidents there which involving the equestrian sports which they say triggered some very strong reactions from the media and uh, obviously there have been some calls for all equestrian competition to be removed from future Olympics. And the reports authors have said it therefore seems essential for us to think about about the possible improvements that could be made for horses and the future of the sport. And what sort of, I know there are some recommendations which are sort of
0: sport specific or discipline specific and some which are across the whole of equestrianism. Give us an idea of the sort of recommendations that are being made across all horse sports.
5: So yeah, there are some things about um, like facilities saying the horses should have enough places for grazing and relaxation and, and recommendations on feeding saying they should have forage multiple times a day. And then there are some other sort of general recommendations over tack. So they're saying there should be tighter controls against excessively tight nosebands with more checks. And they say they should review and ban tack that they say can cause horses harm. In particular, nosebands that increase the capacity to tighten like cranks and and Greckles, and flash nose bands in all disciplines.
0: okay, And give us
5: some examples of specific recommendations that are being given for for certain disciplines as well. So one thing is that in eventing they want to ban uh, the gag or elevator bits across country especially with a flash or a grackle, combination bits and the use of martingales with uh, elevator bits. So that was sort of partly eventing and partly across all. Um, Another eventing one was they recommend 100% frangible fences, dressage related possibly. It says any flexion that puts the horse's head behind the vertical should be banned. And another one was that specifically for show jumping, they've said it should return to the four rider to a team format that we had of course before Tokyo, which of course the FEI has already said is not gonna happen.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, this one, Eleanor, when I read through that report, because some of it, I think, is sensible. There are things that Mm -hmm. actually already maybe are in our rules or that we're striving for. And some of it, I think, is a bit unrealistic. Like, I think anybody who knows anything about course design would say 100% frangibles just isn't a place that we can get to in the sport in two years
5: time for cross country. Would you agree? Yeah, there there seems to be, I'm sure it's all, you know, they want this to be a welfare-led games, which of course everyone would support and be behind, but there are some things in there like they want... uh equine herpes vaccinations to be mandatory, for example, and as we reported just a couple of weeks ago, the FEI hasn't decided whether that will be a thing yet or not. So yes, there seem to be some some things, and, and you know, we spoke to the FEI and they said many of these recommendations are in place already, and they're confirming what already exists. But yes, it might be odd if there are some things that are not in the FEI rules.
0: Hmm. I also was struck by the one that says that we should remove from competition any horses with a medical history that is not compatible with an optimal state of health, e.g. a history of bone, ligament or muscle injury Mm. resulting in long periods of inactivity. And it just seems I mean, obviously we all know top horses that have had a year off, you know, horses do suffer soft tissue injuries. A lot of those injuries result in horses missing a season. How are they going, are they they really going to uh, sort of write any horse off from competing at the Olympics who's had a period out of the sport with injury that also Mm. seems just quite at odds with our understanding of the sport and, and the fact those horses have you know had good care and been nursed back to health and perhaps aren't actually any more liable to injury than a horse
5: which has never had an injury now. No exactly and there are as we know horses who have come back from injury to win Olympic medals and been absolutely 100% fine and happy and you know is that a bad thing? really don't think so. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see where this lands and how many of these are taken forward and how many are not. Also, just touching on that one that you mentioned about dressage, about banning any horses whose uh, faces are coming behind the vertical. Obviously, horses who are going behind the vertical are marked down in dressage. In terms of actually banning them, I mean, I don't think riders are trying to do something which is resulting in them being marked down um you know they're, they're probably trying to push the horse's face further out and mm. i'm not quite sure if they're going to immediately ban you from competition the second your horse comes a couple of centimeters behind the vertical for for, for a couple of seconds I, again yeah. that seems maybe unrealistic
5: yeah definitely
0: all right well we'll be interested to see where that one lands thank you eleanor lucy you've been writing about research into spinal injuries this week tell us who is undertaking this new research and, and what's their sort of approach to it
6: So this is a vast project really with quite a few strands which all fall under the umbrella of the analysis of the prevention of spinal injuries in horse racing. So like I said it's a huge project it's run in collaboration with British Horse Racing Authority and the University of Bath as well as the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board and it's funded by the Racing Foundation and essentially it's seeking to find out the why of why spinal injuries happen in racing which is as we said, an enormous topic with so many variables, really. Um, I went along to the Injured Jockey Funds conference in April where PhD student at the University of Bath, Deloney Lucas, was presenting this. And then I had another chat with her to follow up on her presentation, which was, I mean, it was an excellent presentation and it threw up so many things to think about, really. I know when we sort of say, gosh, that's a big topic, when you start to really delve into it, it is a gigantic topic. so in layman's terms, while there's research out there into instance rates, there hasn't really been previous research into why these are happening. So this is about that next step, Uh, It's taking a really holistic look at the injuries and the environmental factors. So things like going, fence, type of race, but also the individual factors, health, medical history, if someone's got metal work already in their body, for example, and it's involving huge amounts of video analysis. And there's also going to be a computer simulation strand too. So I think we can expect to hear much, much more about this going forwards.
7: Mm,
0: Interesting. And quite a large part of your story is about sort of safety clothing, safety wear and body protectors in particular. Tell us a bit more about that part of it.
6: Yes, yeah, so like you said, that's one of the strands. And um, Just to pull out kind of one of the elements within that strand itself, we heard at the conference that more than 60% of jockeys that responded to this part of the study hadn't been fitted for the body protector they're currently using. And now that has sparked a push for education, really. RaceSafe, which produces the level two body protectors that jockeys wear, is looking to impu- improve education both to the jockeys through I getting hold of them in licensing courses at the start of their careers, for example, and also the valets who look after the jockey's kit and will often procure kit for the jockeys. So it's really, really important that they're part of that conversation too. And it's in the research itself, it's independent from RaceSafe, but as the manufacturers, they've been involved in making prototypes from some of the feedback that's been received as part of the research in terms of what jockeys want, in terms of comfort, flexibility, weight, obviously is a huge thing in racing. so. So, that as well, um, all coming under what they need in terms of protection to meet that level two standard. And I saw some of these at the conference. They're really interesting in how they've, there's some different panelling, different padding in different places. So, I spoke to James Howe from Race Safe for the article, and he said that the research was really good timing actually as materials and technology have moved on from to an extent from when they designed those level 2 body protectors uh, in time for the 2017 in Ireland and 2018 in Britain rule changes when those came into effect. So there's lots of going on in the product development side too, loads of positives coming out in terms of that and loads of positives coming out in terms of education. But another really big part of that sort of, well, touching on the education side really, is how important it is to have the right fit. They can do, you know, RaceSafe can have all the, materials in the world do all the design and and all the flexibility and comfort and protection in the world but you really you need to be wearing something that fits you properly so it's raising education about what they can do within their um, in-house manufacturing department to, to, to make sure that that fits right which is one of the you know the perks of having a a British based company, um, which does their development and manufacturing in house so they can do alterations. So again, it's pushing that message about education surrounding that. And I think that's probably an important message for all of us, really. And you think, I mean, how easy it is to to get fitted. I'm sure lots of people have been fitted for body protectors in the past, but you change shape over the years and it's important to make sure the one you're wearing now fits you properly, I think is a good take home message for everybody.
0: Mm. very much so well thank you very much Lucy for that and thank you to Eleanor for joining us today too this week's podcast is supported by NAF 5 Star Superflex as fed by Laura Collett NAF 5 Star Superflex provides your horse's joints with flexibility for life 5 Star Superflex is also recommended for horses showing signs of daily wear and tear soundness issues reduced joint movement or shorten stride. So now it's time to go over to our vets, Rick and Andy, for some tales of veterinary life.
2: Hi, my name's Rick. I'm one of the vets at Far and Percy Equine. Uh, we're based in Hertfordshire, so we're a first opinion practice. And I'm joined by Andy Fitzjackson, who hopefully is there.
7: Um, yeah, Andy Fitz-Jackson, I'm a surgeon uh, at the Royal Veterinary College in, in Hertfordshire. Um, I work in mainly well, in referral practice now, so I, I accept cases from folk like Rick who um, uh, refer them in to me, but uh, back in the day I spent time in first opinion practice in, um, in Somerset um, and in Hampshire before coming here, um, so uh, and I've been here about for 14 years. We just
2: thought we'd have a bit of a change in tact because um, there's loads of educational podcasts out there, but frankly... Um, I don't think a lot of people appreciate sometimes uh, what it's like to be a vet, the kind of stuff that we go through on a day to day basis and some of the cases that we uh, come up with. So we've all been having a bit of a chat and trying to come up with a few of those kind of classical stories um, that you'd almost want to put in in a memoir book. Um, some of them well i don't know about you andy but there's some that definitely can't go in a memoir book because someone (laughs) would know who you were talking about and frankly some are actually um a little bit yeah a bit too close to the bone but i don't know um i just thought we'd have a little chat about the kind of quirks about what what you experience really as a first opinion vet and even as a referral vet uh, what i've experienced then say some of those stories that um yeah, you'd love to put down on paper because it does make you giggle and actually think, yeah, I do actually quite like my job as well. Um. <laughs> yeah,
7: we were talking the um, about sort of the image one likes to portray as a vet. You know, being obviously professional is what you, you look for in your vet. And, you know, we're, we all must be professional and, and and portray that as well. And I remember, I was well aware of this, and this is literally the first time I ever had vaccinated a horse um but this on well, actually my first one was actually a donkey and this is my first job and i've just got my stamp through you know they, they stamp your passport with and are so proud you're very of proud of that stamp as oh, well my word. Word. you know I, I was there stamping everything <laughs> you know <laughs> stamping a did a few practice stamps you know and there's you know, a Fis jackson but are you're, you're really proud of it you know something you've worked really hard for but then, of course, you know, I thought, well, I want to be a, an equine vet, you know, and, and we all have this little image of the equine vet. It's not far removed from the James Herrick. If there's a bit of tweed involved, that's not bad things, perhaps. But you, but my, I had my cords, I had my check shirt, I had my gilet, you know, I bought myself some nice boots and I was going out to, to, uh, to do this vaccination as a fully fledged, you know, equine mm. vet, very proud of mm-hmm. myself. And I'll not lie, I'll even pretend there was a bit of a strut, you know, that I could adopt, you know, <laughs> confidence. Let's call it a swagger. Uh, anyway, so I've got this this um, donkey and, uh, you know, and I'm doing all the right things, asking the questions, how it's been so forth. And then uh, there were two of them, actually. And they proceed with the, uh, the vaccinations on these donkeys. Uh, all went very nicely, you know, filled in the passport details. And then the the, the stamp, there it was, pretty proud of myself. But Actually putting on something real this time rather than a mm. bit of... Uh, a4 paper or my wrist, even, or whatever. Anyway, and the owner said, well, um, oh, sir, I said, "What not you, mind? I'm helping me turn these donkeys back out. Um, you know, just cause you know, the two them. quite, she said, you, are you, you used to dealing with horses? Oh yes. Don't you worry. I'm, you know, and I g- gave her a potted history, of course, of my experience, <laughs> you know, through pony club and all this and the fine. other, well, Rick will know what donkey. Many of you will also know what yeah. donkeys are like, they are small, but they are incredibly strong and anyway so this i i, I walked up, started this walk out to the field and the swagger's still going you know i've still got the gilet on i'm still you know i'm thinking looking the part well, this donkey starts to build up the pace a bit and it's, i found it, it was getting increasingly difficult to to adopt the swagger in the strut without it you know turning into a little kind of a wee jog mm. and this thing got faster and faster the jog turned into a run and i'm now sprinting trying <laughs> to keep up with this donkey and in the end that was it it had gone i couldn't keep up yeah but now donkey someone could...
2: will be there with a the camera phone won't they or, yeah. the, or the phone actually videoing <laughs> it and seeing you fall flat on your face but we've all been it... carted over oh yeah
7: Oh, yeah. and donkeys though they're just Ridiculous. Well, I have actually been caught on camera uh, at the livery yard where my kids keep their horses, and that was uh, exactly the same thing happened. Uh, a bigger horse this time. Things thing suddenly bolted and bolted across this gravel car park. I managed to hold on for it a little bit and then let go. And uh, unfortunately, that was uh, caught on, on camera. You do, you, you have
2: that sense of kind of like, I have to. This is my job. I need to mm. hold on to this thing. And then you slowly realize, actually, by the time you've got three or four rope burns through your hands, <laughs> yeah. it's not actually yeah. worth it everything because you can't hold anything for a week I um, but I mean I don't know about you what biggest thing when I first qualified I found was the phone I still have nightmares when that Nokia ring tone goes off because mm. that was my first call one but what people probably don't understand is when you're on call that phone goes everywhere with you literally everywhere I can say it with a degree of embarrassment as well that I have multiple times answered the phone while I've been on the toilet um, I because you have to when you're on call and that phone goes off, but the amount of times that people, I'm so glad that people don't FaceTime call me because I've jumped out that shower, I don't know how many times I can remember, literally not a single piece of clothing on me, dripping everywhere, everything swinging around in the breeze, just because it doesn't matter what you do, what you plan, whether it's having some tea, going to the loo, having a shower, you can guarantee that phone will go off at the most inappropriate
7: moment. Uh, well, I completely, and I we used to have a pager in my first practice, which um, you get a chew, you get very sort of, um, it's like an alarm, isn't it? You know, mm. you're so just a, adjusted to that tone. And I used to try and play rugby when I was on call um, in this, in the first job. And um, I remember we were doing this, the warm up for the game um, and we're doing the big sort of huddle where you go, what are we going to do? Oh, we're mm-hmm. busy hitting each other, again. we're going to mm. smash them. <laughs> And uh, I'd given the coach my pager and in amongst all this psyching up, I could hear the page go, dee, dee, dee. and I was going, yeah, we're going to write, could I have my pager, please? You know, oh, yeah, we're going to oh, go, yeah, we're going to get my pager, please. And no one else could hear this thing. And in the end, after all getting all psyched up, I had to basically just leave straight away. Um, that that, that um, phone is generally,
2: though, the bane of your life sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a lot of us, when we're on call, we do try to sleep. And so it's like mm. um, it, our rota, I start, uh, if I'm on call at the weekend, I'll start on the Thursday morning and I'll finish at 6 p.m. on a Monday evening. So I'll work 24 hours all the way through. So you try to get some sleep obviously in between. But the amount of times that you work at 12, 14, 16 hour a day, you'll go to bed having eaten something at crazy like half past 11, you'll be in bed for half an hour in that time when you're in your deepest sleep. That phone mm. will go off within two rings, you are literally picking that phone up. But I don't know about anyone else. When you first wake up, you have that degree of delirium. Yeah. Unfortunately, the person on the other end of the phone has been up probably for about an hour and a half, is in the middle of a field, and gives you their entire life history, and the history of the horse, sometimes without saying their name, within about 15 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> the it, it's, that, it's that realization like, I'm not awake, but I am awake, and I'm meant yeah. to take all this information in really, really quickly, and they're panicky on the end of the phone, so the next time you ring your vet at 2 a.m., um, yeah. bear in mind that we, we've probably been asleep, and if your partner's laying by you as well, they normally nudge you, because they can hear the phone go off, and then yeah. that's it, you're, you're out,
7: uh, yeah. It's, it, 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 I end up having to say, hang on, you're just gonna have to say a little bit of that again. Yeah. <laughs>
2: you're just you just, it's like you don't have a pen. It's like when you get out of the shower and they give you all this information. You're like, genuinely, I don't mm. even have a single piece of clothing on, much less a pen. I'm never going to jot this down. I've got the phone in my hand and that's it and a very wet floor underneath me. That's no, completely it's... normal though, uh,
7: but not yeah. for everyone else. <laughs> Equally, you know, you can't, you, I'm mean, of the opinion these days, you can't completely stop your life when you're on call, you know, and, no. uh, but you've just always got to be aware of where you are. But yeah, it, uh, it never goes off when you kind of would like to get out of a situation. That's for sure. We thought, well, I wish I could be called in. That'd be nice. Uh, it would. That never seems to happen. Or
2: when you're on a dog walk at, you're at the furthest point away from your house, mm. which is only 15 minutes, but the phone will go off and then you have to leg it back and everything right. to get in your car. Or you've got your kids in tow and you're trying to get them to walk even quicker
7: to get back to the That's car right. well, maybe you've dared to go out for a pub lunch with someone and, they go, oh, I'm oh, cool. and then they just so the main goals and then there we have to go but um, yeah the, can I, put, I put it in a bun for you in a box it's never quite the same is it but,
2: don't don't plan anything when you're on call cool. but um yeah it, it's
7: one of those joys of
2: of being a vet so um yeah, hopefully, the next time you call your vet in the middle of the night, uh, you do appreciate they might be asleep or even in early evening, they might even be in the shower. So give them a little bit of a, a break and uh, we'll see you all uh, on the next podcast.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. And we'll hear from Rick and Andy again next week with more stories from their vet practices. Our interview next week will be with Alan Davies, superstar groom to dress our royalty, Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin. Plus, of course, we'll view all the weeks to use as normal. Thank you for listening to this week's Horse and Hound podcast, supported by NAF Five Star Superflex. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.